0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Mason. Hello. Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Nate, are you back? Yep, I am here. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest. That's Adam Cuppy. Adam, we've had you on the show before, but do you want to remind people who you are?
1: Sure. So I'm a co-founder and the current chief operating officer at Zeal. We're a web and mobile applications consultancy Based around the United States. So I'm down in San Diego, but we have a headquarters up
0: in Oregon and team members all across the country. Nice. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Yeah, we brought you on today to talk about a talk that you gave at RailsConf last year called Mechanically Confident.
1: Yeah, and actually, I've been lucky enough to give that talk a lot. So since then, I think I've given it, I don't know, maybe 15 different times. In fact, I was just at Abstractions last week and gave it there. And then here in whatever it is, about a month or so, I'll give it again in Utah GS.
0: And yeah, and I think that's so far where we're at. (laughs) So a lot of times. Yeah, I need to make my way over to... uh, to Utah JS since it's right here yeah <laughs> when it's in your backyard it, it's the catch
1: 22 right it's so accessible that it becomes the one you don't do but yeah. it's so accessible it should
0: it's the one you should do <laughs> probably yeah well part of the problem is is that I've had this insane travel schedule i mean next weekend i'm going to be gone i'm going to another conference in the middle of september and i don't know if it conflicts there you so, go yeah that's the other thing. I'm gone but, yeah Cool. So do you want to kind of give us the elevator pitch on this? Absolutely.
1: So this was, there's a little history to it, but in essence, I have a hypothesis that confidence is not the result of belief alone, which I think is the way we refer to it often. You know, you have to believe in yourself to be confident, but you end up in this reciprocal loop that I don't know that's overly constructive or real. Instead, I believe that confidence is the result of ingrained routine. So the more routine, the more pattern, the more rehearsal that you apply to a given thing the more confident you'll operate and i also believe that people can operate and act in a confident manner even if they don't fundamentally believe that they are confident in a given thing and i think we see this a lot with software developers that are now you know air quotes senior that even though they might still suffer from things such as imposter syndrome or a dip in perceived confidence, they still operate very confidently. They have a a strong sense for how to tackle a problem, even if they don't know the solution right off the top of their head.
2: You know, it's funny. I was talking to someone the other day, and they said, what boot camp can I go to to go from being a novice to an expert in six months? And I told them, (laughs) there is no such boot camp. Because being an expert is years and years of making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. At least for me, that's where I derive to be what I don't want to call myself an expert, but I've been seasoned for many years by learning from my own mistakes. And I think that's also where confidence can get built up is through you've kind of quote seen it all.
1: Yeah, well, I also think that sometimes that can be an excuse and uh, not to, I think the sentiment you're making is, is totally true and real. So the history behind this was I started as a professional stage actor. That's what I had my degree in. I took only a single HTML class in college. Other than that, every, my entire focus was on art, um, specifically performative art. And then over time, I made my way into now, you know, writing software. But what I realized was that in performative art forms such as theater or music or choral work you know, or any of those kind of, again, performative arts, the concept of rehearsal is totally commonplace. I think most people, even if you've never been in any of those industries, are familiar with the idea that rehearsal exists. In fact, I think most people even know that it happens for many, many weeks. Well, the point of rehearsal has only one real function. And that is to ingrain that, those objectives, ingrain that, that language, ingrain the movements into the body so that when you go on stage in front of an audience, that you're as physically prepared and that the response is as automated as possible, that, that you can step onto the stage even if you have butterflies in your stomach. And to a large extent, the mind and the body will just take over and do the routine that you've practiced over and over again. What I realized was that the concept of this is not shared in many other industries. In fact, most industries for that matter. And it's definitely not shared consciously in software development. However, what I discovered was that a lot of senior or experienced software developers, they had a routine. There was a thing that they were consistently doing. In fact, I'll I'll ask this question because I always think this is a fun one. So of you, the panelists, and, and you listening or watching... If you have written software for, let's say, more than a year or two years, let's say even upwards of five years or more, how consistent or routined are you verging on obsessive compulsive are you about placement of windows on the screen when you're writing code? I would venture to say that most of us are. And that was a commonality that I found was that, this, that we would build these structures, these routines around the way in which we approached our work that created that consistency. It kind of lifted that cognitive load off the head. And so my theory was, can you make that happen more quickly? Like is time corollary or, is it, or can you play with that so that you can truncate that timeline from being 10 years down to maybe one or two simply by having optimal experiences play a major role in how you
3: do your work? And if so, be more quick at it. I totally fall in the bucket of uh, establishing patterns and, and habits and things like that. Even even my routine of, you know, in the morning when I sit down, you know, I've got my caffeinated beverage and I sit at the computer, I pop open all of my familiar tool chains, you know, all the windows and I've got it down to a, a science where I run Tmux and a, a utility called Tmosil and it just pops open the app, opens my editor, you know, gives me all of the windows that I need. To run my application and do my development, and without that, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a much slower start to the day. If I if I start, yeah, if I start that way, I'm already I'm in the zone pretty quick.
1: Totally, I always find it funny whenever there's a change. You know, we pair program a lot at Zeal, and we work with a lot of teams that do the same. And one of our kind of mantras is keep it simple. And part of that relates to just making it easy to onboard. But another factor of that is because if you maintain that simplicity, you're probably going to maintain a level of consistency as well. And so if you're constantly changing up either key bindings or layouts on a screen, it's surprisingly like how often people want to like flip a desk and they're like, I can't I can't even program anymore. I know nothing. Well, but it's just that the color on the screen changed a little bit. I know, but I know nothing anymore. And I think it's because it's those ingrained habits, that cognitive load that's now being tested and the uncertainty that gets added back into the equation that makes me feel like, oh my gosh, everything's changed. So getting back to there, like you said, with t or using, you know, having the cup of coffee in that same place, all of that matters, totally matters.
2: Even if you're really confident, like you've established these patterns, you're very confident in your daily routine, you've practiced a lot it's funny how just one little speed bump like that can make it all come crashing down. It's like you've got yourself out of sync with your repetition and patterns. So, so how do you avoid that huge like stopgap from a slight change in your daily pattern? Sure.
1: I'll actually reference improv actors. So a lot of people don't realize improv actors are some of the most rehearsed actors that ever hit a stage. I think most people think when they think improv that it's, it's all random, right? Everything about it is random. That's just not true. The only thing that's random is the content and the situation, which is basically still the content. Otherwise, improv actors rehearse everything else. They rehearse how they're going to work together. They rehearse the games. They rehearse the environment. They rehearse it all. So in response to your question is you can rehearse quote unquote you can rehearse you can practice everything else around the variability so that when the variability strikes whatever that looks like you've built a structure around yourself that allows for that to not totally impact you so as a conference speaker one of the th- two of the major things that are likely to change time and time again is where you're speaking and who you're speaking in front of so if you build this structure around yourself that I am the most confident in this specific environment and this environment alone, like this building, this place, this room in front of only these people, then it can make it really tough when you're put up in front of a different group in a different place or even in a different time zone. So what I do for myself is I have a priming routine that I do right before I give a talk every single time. It's something I have total control over. Right, And it's the same five-minute routine or approximately five minutes breathing exercises. It's the same physical exercises. And while all of those things help get the blood flowing and there is a, th- there's a functional component to it, whether it be tongue twisters and whatnot, I think in reality, a good, vast majority of why I do it is to create the consistency that I need to get into the right mental state so that I've eliminated as much other variability as possible so that I'm mentally prepared for the variability I'm about to experience, which is a new group in a new place. So when you have that confidence in the many things that you do and that build your routine around the things you always or a majority of the time can control, right? So if you work from home, like what's your work environment, whether it's the, you know, the cup of coffee that you drink in the morning or, you know, how you, even how you get dressed, right? I'm a person that works from home and has for a long time. And I always wear shoes because it gets me in the right state of mind that I'm working. And so, you know, and so it's those little things that you can, you can stack so that when, again, that variability hits, you're ready for it.
0: Yeah. I've been reading the book, Atomic Habits by James Clear. And he talks- Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. And then he talks about habit stacking. And so, you know, some of the things that you're talking about doing you know, like taking, you know, breathing and, you know, doing these exercises, those are all cues, but you can also add other things into the habit, like making sure you have your clicker, making sure it's plugged into your computer, you know, and so all of these other things can stack on top of it. And then you don't walk out there and have that hiccup happen when it's, oh, my clicker's not working or, oh, where is it? Oh, it's in my bag over there. Right. And so you, you, again, you go through these, these different things and yeah, we're all Prime to take these mental shortcuts to do these things. Another thing, just, just out of this, is to make it as easy as possible. And I think you know that's kind of what Nate pointed out with was it uh, team Asil? and yeah yeah Timasil ends so. it all up right. So the routine is now I run one program or run two programs instead of running you know eight things to get everything set up. Oh yeah, and if I have to reset it up. I have to cheat, right? I, I go look at a project I've already built all those
3: things up for and just pull them all over. Yeah, doing it from scratch is, is, too, is too daunting. Like you have to reach for what's already been proven successful in the past.
2: Yeah, team sounds like an ointment than it does a utility. That's <laughs> an interesting... <laughs> all right. <laughs> you rub it on yourself. Oh, that's right.
0: Yeah, nice. Yeah, but it, it does. It makes total sense. It's also interesting, you know, we've had conversations about things like Docker and tools like that. That again, you know, you can feed it into this process. And then, yeah, you know, instead of making sure you have all those gems installed and blah, 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 right? They just go grab your Docker image or your Docker file and, you know, at least most of the way there. Or some kind of coordination file if they're doing, you know, more than one container and it spins everything up. Yeah, without a doubt, I think it's one of the most
1: powerful things about many frameworks is it just creates emotional certainty that, you know, it shouldn't eliminate that variability, but it creates emotional certainty. And I think that's a big part of what makes us really effective. So another part of what inspired this was a couple of years back, we were working with some interns out of a code school. So part of their, they had been in a three month program and then their fourth month was a practical, you know in-person internship and they were building a rails application which they had been learning uh, how to do for the prior three months and like many people that were you know had little or less experience they were getting tripped up on things that they had tackled and solved many times prior so there i would say that their level of known confidence was low and what i found fascinating about it was was how many iterations they would go through continually feeling like they didn't know the answer when they did, and they had tackled it before time and time again. So coincidentally, later that afternoon, I was pairing with some of our more experienced team members, and they were experiencing, you know, issues, bugs, errors, whatnot, but it was fewer iterations. And I was thinking, you know, it's easy to cast that off as just being experience, right? Oh, well, they've experienced, they have experience to know that don't go three iterations or go three attempts before you look up some support docs, you know, go no more than two attempts or something like that. But there was another thing I noticed, and it goes back to the window placement, was the interns that we were working with, it was chaos on the screen. I mean, windows were not placed consistently things were overlapping. They had windows and they had tabs in a terminal window and they had multiple terminal windows all showing similar things. Everything was everywhere. But for the more experienced team members, everything was incredibly structured, right? They were consistent with either new windows or tabs or their placement of things was exactly the same. So we ran an experiment. So on the third week, I said, all right, to the interns I said, "I want to try an experiment, so go with me, and for this week, all I want is I want you to just stick with where you 're going to place the windows that 's it i don 't want you to think differently about your work i don 't want you to try anything unique. All I want you to do is just place the terminal on the left hand side of the screen, the editor on the right, and your browser behind it and only stick with tabs. It was a matter of hours in a matter of hours, there were fewer iterations tackling and addressing problems. And so my hypothesis was that there was this cognitive load that was being applied to just the chaos to try and manage and maintain the chaos in their head. Whereas if you could pull that out of the equation and you could get to some consistency that it allowed for, again, that mental battery to be more available to explore other things. And I thought that was just wonderfully fascinating. So then at the end of the week, when they went into their fourth week, I had them change it up and surprise, surprise the first, I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it was a matter of like a few hours, they were confused and they were lost again and everything was different. And so I think there's a real correlation behind those two that the more consistency that you can create for yourself, the more probability that you're creating that you're going to be successful in future iterations and you're going to eliminate that need to focus on it all and let go of it. And I think frameworks can be really powerful in that regard above and beyond just the technical you know, capabilities that they might provide to you.
3: Yeah, it is interesting to see how closely this relates to frameworks and shared tooling. It brings to mind a, a RailsConf keynote that was given by Yehuda Katz about, you know, the, the benefits of shared tooling. And I think DHH has talked about this as well in terms of, you know, he frames it as cognitive compression right uh, the more things like that that we can take off the table it's it's just an interesting analogy that you bring kind of a perspective from acting the acting world like rehearsing is really just there building the muscle memory right it's it's there establishing those patterns and reducing the cognitive overhead and compressing that down so you no longer have to think about any of it
4: 100% totally yeah i find this interesting because I mean, I am a newer developer, but my entire everything is chaos. Like, I I'm not an organized person whatsoever. Like, if you could see my room right now, you would be mortified. I've always been like that, and it seems like I've just gotten used to the way it is. But recently, I did start I did start structuring the way I lay out my windows a little bit better, and I haven't exactly seen a difference. But it's interesting you bring that up because not only do have I started structuring my windows differently, I also changed my setup up a bit depending because I work from home and I also work from my office and just very recently, I have my office and my home set up almost exactly in sync. And it's, it's an interesting thought because as someone who's very accustomed to chaos and just used to kind of living in that way, I'm interested to see going forward, like, will I be more productive now that I have some consistency and I'm establishing these patterns versus like the chaos that I'm just used to living in? Well, chaos can be a pattern right? It can be something that
1: creates that same sort of certainty in a different way. I'm curious for you, do you feel like even amidst the chaos that you still feel like you understand where things are at? Oh yeah, 100%. (laughs) Totally. So it might look like chaos to others, right? The model may look quote unquote chaotic, but it doesn't mean that for you, it's chaos for you, it's structure. And so it's an individualized thing. Right. So for anybody listening, I'm not saying that, you know, uh, solidifying where you place windows on a screen is going to solve any problems. It might introduce new ways to think. It might kind of pull that cognitive load off. But I would imagine that for you, Andrew, that if I was to take your quote unquote chaos and I was to create new chaos in that same room, even if it looked similar, just simply by moving things around, you would feel that chaos. You would feel the chaos and the uncertainty, whereas currently you don't. So it's a very individualized thing. And I think that's perfectly acceptable. It's like finding what it is for you. Oftentimes when I give consult teams on this subject matter, team leaders think that their job now is to create order. Well, no, that can help from the sake of bringing a team together so that there's consistency. But it doesn't mean that you know, creating a model that everyone follows is the answer to that question because it's so
4: individualized. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way. I've never really thought about that before, but it's, you brought to mind a memory of I came home from work one day and my girlfriend at the time had completely cleaned everything in my room, done all the laundry, put it all where it was supposed to be, nothing on the floor, like cleaned up the kitchen. And I was like, I have no idea where anything is now. I was like, I knew where that shirt was. It was over there on the corner of my room on the floor.
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, if we really dive into empathy when it comes to this subject matter, is is to just recognize that we are creatures of habit. I re- I believe that. I believe that we are people that build structures, and that's how we compartmentalize things. And recognizing that we all do that is one step. The second step is recognizing that
3: we all do that differently. So, I like the idea of of helping build confidence, especially in in new developers, people that are kind of entering and and feeling the overwhelming sense of imposter syndrome. Part of it is from the the tyranny of choice, right? There's just so many things available, so many learning resources, so many decisions to make, what programming language, what framework, then once you've decided on one of those things, like what style you're going to use inside of it, all of those things. So I like the idea of establishing patterns and practices that, that essentially pull some of that cognitive load off to help them build confidence sooner. At what point does it become problematic where you it becomes a false confidence like you've pulled some of that away and you've got this rep you know this kind of uh, repetitive process you go through and now you're starting to feel confident at what point because sometimes it's good to get kind of pushed off balance right and go back to that learning state so when this approach become problematic
1: yeah so I think it differs radically based on the people and the team that are involved so I don't think that there's a a one-size-fits-all answer to that. But I will say that there's a scenario or a subject matter that leads to that false confidence or at least the dogmatism rather quickly. And that is, if you follow certain styles of Agile with a capital A, that there's a belief that by simply being Agile with a capital A, that you are being pragmatic but it can very quickly lead to dogmatism, right? Do it this way and this way alone. And if I don't check all these agile boxes, I'm not doing it. And as a result of that, it, crea- it has a tendency to create a lack of flexibility. Ironically, it makes you less agile with a lowercase a, right? And so I think those are areas in which if as a team we find ourselves so so required to follow a particular process or a way of thinking that we can't function without that, that, and that we are fighting against that change so heavily that we lose that agile mindset or that agile sensibility, then that might be evidence or a smell that we want to start to think a little differently about the way in which we're thinking about solving problems on a regular basis. As a company. Because we're a consultancy and we work with a lot of teams that have, you know, large technical teams, oftentimes the first step we go through is to try and normalize our thinking around very simple principle sets, right? So Agile as a principle set comes down to some real basics. I mean, if you look at the Agile Manifesto, it's really simple. I mean, we're talking a handful of lines ultimately, there's not dogmatism that's baked into it. There's principles and ideals. And if you're following principles and ideals, then more often than not, you're able to maintain that flexibility. Now, as an actor, my process over the last two decades of being a professional actor or semi-professional actor has changed. The way I memorize things has changed gone back and forth. The way I approach a new script or a new character has has gone different directions, but the principles are effectively the same. As an example, understanding what the character's objective is in the entire play has always been true. How I get to understanding that objective so that I can build the tactics that lead up to that character either winning or, or succeeding at their objective varies. My methods to get there sometimes... I feel like as an actor, my method of finding the emotional state and and finding a degree of empathy with a fictitious character might come outward in, right? Similar to testing BDD versus TDD, right? I might take an outward in approach to that where I'm looking more at the physical, physicality of the character first. Versus and trying to discover the emotional state, the internal state of the character. Whereas in other situations, I might go straight to the internal state and figure out and let that sort of like bleed out into the physical state of the character on the outside. Those go back and forth. But again, the principle of understand the objective has always stayed true. So as a development team, we can do something very similar. And I think as team leaders, that's really our role as mentors and guides is. Can we come down to the core level principles that are going to guide us on a regular and consistent basis? Don't make them complicated, make them very simple, and allow the team to evolve its process around that, whether it's agile or waterfall or a combination of the two. I don't know that it's as relevant as it is, yes, but does your team have principles that you're following to make your high-level decision-making?
3: Yeah, that's, I guess that's the, the underlying goal, right? Is Always keep your eye on the principle, what the goal actually is. You know, TDD in general, you know, several years ago in the in the Ruby community, it became somewhat controversial, right? Because, and it's the same thing. It, it became somewhat dogmatic where everybody said, this is exactly how you have to do it. But they, in becoming dogmatic, you lose sight of the goal. And the goal is to produce software, like stable, you know, functional software that benefits the user. And, you know, sometimes... A strict TDD approach might not be the most efficient way to get there. I don't know. I think it's good. It's healthy to recognize when we're we're turning dogmatic.
1: Yeah. Or similarly, like you mentioned, Docker. You know, Docker isn't a one size fits, fits approach to every problem, nor is React, nor is Ruby, Rails, Elixir, any of them. You know. But if, but going back to those principles, like if you understand fundamentally, our principle drives us towards containerization or drives us towards an object-oriented model versus a functional model. If we have principles that back that, then, yeah, then our decision-making can be variable. And that's cool. That's great. It allows us to be flexible as a team. And I think as, as experienced developers, we build that into our thinking anyway, right? I mean, I, it's there's like this really interesting like exponential curve. Like when you're starting to learn out, uh, starting to learn programming, I, I think for most of us, we start with like, like one language, right? It's like, I'm going to learn Ruby and Ruby alone, and I'm going to let the HTML, I, I don't really know it, but I'm going to learn Ruby, Ruby alone. And then all of a sudden we we learn a couple of other things and we start to, and in the talk I go over this, like we we go through this, this audit process where we take what we know and we say, of the thing we don't know, what of it is the same, right? I give the example in the talk of, you know, here in the United States, you know, we drive on the left side, of the car and then I you go over to the UK and they're on the right side of the car and for my uh, my personal experiences when I had to do that I had you know my my partner with me and my parents with me and we're all in the same car and I'm like oh my god today they're all gonna die everyone's gonna die today because I don't know how to drive anymore right but you get in the car and the brain goes through this quick routine of yes but what's the same oh the wheel is the same The dashboard is effectively the same. The pedals are the same. The stick shift is the same. But what's different? Well, what's not the same? What's not the same as I'm on the other side of the car? And that audit process is something as developers we gain really fast. And all of a sudden it's like, oh boy, this new, you know, now it's TypeScript, but it's still JavaScript. And so we can audit that. And now we're writing TypeScript all of a sudden. And, you know, where it would have taken us six months to learn anything, we can learn it in a week or a weekend. Because our our ability to sort of map those things over top of one another is so fast now. And that is the skill. We have those same
4: principles that allow us to be incredibly effective really fast. It's funny. I, I had a computer science degree in college and I found almost every single class unhelpful. But there was one specific professor I had who was very young, working actively in software development. And he taught his class. He went through several different programming language different frameworks throughout the class we had a project in each of them and he stated at the very beginning that his goal was to teach us that maybe the the syntax is different but the fundamental structures of programming languages are the same and you can look in and find the patterns and then you can just research the exact way this language wants to do this thing but the fundamental algorithm that you would use to solve the problem was fundamentally the same and throughout that course that I've kept that to heart because I've Found that to be a very interesting lesson and I've seen that hold true if I'm programming something in Ruby and I'm like okay now I got to do this thing in Java I can think about it how I would do it in Ruby I said Java I meant JavaScript I can think about how I would do it in Ruby and kind of take that fundamental algorithm of I need to do this 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 and this and then translate that into the syntax of JavaScript and it is really sped up the way I can switch between languages Yeah.
1: And I think that's an essential thing. What your professor did, I think, is the thing that mentors need to focus their energy on when they're working with a mentee is this is what's so important is not to teach the syntax. It's to teach the principles of that language. Let that person discover the syntax. When we pair program, um, I give a talk at a code school here called Pair Shaped. And there's a chunk of it about you know, how to do pair programming effectively. And we talk about the driver navigator, which is probably one of the more common models, right? You have one person that's focusing on the road right in front of them. And then you have another person that's focusing more on the map. And I think an ineffective pair set is one where the navigator is just looking out for syntax problems, right? But a really effective pair set is where the navigator is looking out for the pattern consistency, Are we doing this in alignment with the the style guide we've established on our team or between each other, right? When we're looking out for that, are we following common and similar conventions that we've established as a team? That's when a driver-navigator combo is incredibly effective. That's when you start to build really good software as a pair. The other version of it is like, well, doesn't a linter do that? (laughs) Yes, it does, you know. So you had brought up imposter syndrome before and... You know, a lot of, um, I think a lot of this maybe conceptually resonates, but it's not very helpful without something actionable on the other end of it. (laughs) Like, and so how, where do you start? So, if I could, I'll go to like what the ways to think about it, right? How do you start creating it? So, the first is actually by not changing anything, it's about asking yourself the question, what is it that I just do consistently that creates a consistent result that I'm happy with already in my life. Let's just start there, right? Whether it's my coffee in the morning and, you know, something even seemingly ridiculous, like I use the same coffee cup as an example. You're looking for what are the things you do today, right now, that you are proud of, that create a happy and proud result. And we all have it. So if you feel like you don't, I I encourage you to Get with a friend and explore those things with them because we all do it. And then from there is like, okay, well, how can I create that small iterative change towards something I want to be better at? So as an example with writing better software or I don't know if it's less buggy software or just a new habit or routine that you like to get into is find something small that creates that you can do regularly that gets you there. I mean, we hear about this all the time in health and fitness. It's more valuable to count your to start by counting your calories than to worry about what you're eating. And the reason is because by simply getting into the habit of counting your calories, you're creating conscious awareness on the situation that you're in today. In fact, most people will start to lose weight even if they they seem to eat the same thing just simply by counting calories because their awareness is on it now. And so they, you know, they they don't eat that extra something or they're more selective because simply they're focused on something that has meaning in their life. Then you can iterate on that and say, okay, well, now that I'm counting my calories, my new targets in my calories are, I don't know, 2,000 or whatever. And then I can evolve that into macro ratios and my nutrients. And then I can evolve that into meal planning and meal prep. And I can evolve that into exercise routines. I can start with something that is seemingly small and irrelevant, but that I can stick with consistently and I can build on it. Like developers who stick with window placements or using Tmicil, like Tmiscil doesn't do anything other than create the consistency for you Nate I mean I mean, really, I mean, you can do
3: it manually, like <laughs> you don't have to use it, right? Oh, totally. yeah, and then I got lazy, which is why I built it and and I went down the docker path too, but like just try the the idea of like automating that aspect so it's kind of mundane, right?
0: Yeah. Hey, folks, I want to tell you about a great system that I just found that has made my life a ton easier. That's Cloud 66. A lot of folks think that deploying is a pain. I kind of grew up as an ops guy, and so I never really felt that way until I tried Cloud 66 and realized that the way that I was doing it with Capistrano, pushing stuff up to DigitalOcean, it really was kind of a pain. And when things didn't work, I had to go in, and I had to bang my head against the wall to figure it out. Plus, all the setup stuff was just a big headache. And what I found with Cloud66 is that it's a really nice way just to get everything set up. I just told that I had a Rails app and off it went. It set it all up, it does the deployment. And now that I have other developers working with me on Potter which is what I'm using it for here, all I have to do is give them access and then they can go push the button for me and it gets deployed. It's really nice, it's straightforward. It has all of my environment variables in it, so I didn't have to do any setup that way either. I just had to go in, put in my AWS credentials and a few other things that I was using for third-party apps, and it set it up and ran it. So if you're looking for a great solution for deployments, use the promo code RubyRogues, that's all one word, capital R, capital R, Rogues for $66 off Cloud66. This only works for new users, but man, it is awesome. So go check them out, cloud66.com.
3: I captured a note when I watched your presentation at uh, the RailsConf about visualization like athletes do this i think you alluded to it with actors and at least kind of putting the if you're doing multiple characters or or whatnot putting the focus somewhere and it calls to your mind you know the character that you're doing at that time but athletes do it in terms of visualizing their you know championship win or whatever like that is that a tactic that new developers can use to build their confidence early on
1: Without a doubt, I think I think a person can use visualization in almost every category, especially those that they want to improve. And for those of you who aren't familiar with how I'm defining visualization, it's you may literally be closing your eyes and visualizing yourself successfully completing or finishing a thing. So when athletes, athletes visualize, oftentimes they'll literally almost go into a meditative state and visualize themselves crossing the finish line with that winning time or you know that whatever that success metric looks like for them like they will truly visualize it actors do something very similar or at least i as an actor do that do something very similar which is i will try and visualize myself almost like you know uh, closing my eyes oftentimes i'll do it in front of a mirror and i will try and imagine myself stepping out of my own body turning around looking back on myself as this being this new character Right, so I will visualize what that looks like, and I can use that as kind of a self-reflective model that I can build off of. I think as developers, it's a little bit more abstract. Like, I don't. What would you visualize? Right, I'm I'm visualizing writing that, you know, having that successful passing test, or I'm visualized having that massive successful launch of my code that gets perfectly merged and you know runs perfect every time. I think you can do that, but an area in which I think is is a type of visualization that developers can absolutely do is when it comes to communicating with one another. I know that anxiety, like social anxiety is felt by many of us and a way to work that problem of feeling so anxious, communicating with somebody else, whether it's in a group, on a team or with somebody like sitting next to you is visualize the good intentions and visualize the positive response of that other person or those group of people right? Like just visualize yourself succeeding at properly communicating something. And a way to do that, I do this in the, I used to do this in the car. I still do this in the car, which is I will run the dialogue myself. I will play out the the conversation and, you know, in a successful way, like, and not, In a realistic way, right? Not something that's like, oh, and then they stood up and they gave me a standing ovation for saying we could merge this today, you know, like nothing like that, but something where I visualize the positive intentions and the the positive response of that other person. And so then when I go into that conversation or I go into that environment, I'm going into it with hope and positivity and the byproduct is, is that my outside, the outside of my body will probably exude that positivity as well. I'm going to send, if you believe in that kind of the energetic nature of us as people, like I, which I do, I think that my positivity is going to affect that other person in a constructive way, and we're going to have an even better conversation. And so, you know, salary negotiations can be something you can visualize. Even, you know, if you choose to move on and having that exit interview or telling your boss that I'm moving on to the next job or going to into a great interview, like just setting that intention
4: and visualizing, I think can be super, super impactful for just about anyone. I think that's interesting because I do something similar or I just kind of recently started when I would encounter a problem. There's usually this one developer that almost always has the answer. So I would I started recently kind of playing out that conversation in my head because I've gotten used to sort of the questions he will ask when I ask him a question. And it's gotten almost to the point where I can literally lay out the conversation in my head to the point where he just gives me the answer, even though it's myself. And funny enough, I I literally just typed out the conversation one day and I sent it to him and I was like, is this how this conversation would have gone? And he, he laughed and he's like, yeah, maybe, probably. He's like, but you got to the answer so like on your own. So I think that's an interesting concept, at least. I also try to play out conversations like, oh, I have to give this talk on stage or I have to say this very important thing, this product manager, or I have to do this. And I tried to do that in my head. But what I found, so even though, however many times I rehearse it, As soon as I get on that stage or as soon as I walk in that office, like that's all gone and I just start free balling. So I don't know if you have any advice for once you have that idea of the way you want that conversation to go or the way you want that presentation to go, how do you make sure you stick with that? Are there any habits you can instill or maybe, I I don't know, just sticking with that, what you want to occur?
1: Yeah, without knowing a lot of the detail, it sounds to me like you could benefit from practicing it more. Like, just practice it more than once or twice. You know, visualization is powerful, but like athletes, as an example, they don't visualize just once, right? They do it time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. The two most common questions I get as an actor is how do you memorize all the lines and do you ever get stage fright? And the way I tackle both is the same in its process. So, memorizing lines comes down to rehearsal and routine. I've got to do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again to the point where I could play basketball or do something like wash the dishes or clean the house and just the lines will come out of my mouth in order, in the right sequence, in the right way. Like it's got to be that routine. And the second one is stage fright is I feel it all the time, especially the first show. Butterflies in the stomach. And I've done, I mean, hundreds of performances, you know, 50 60 shows I don't know a lot and I feel it every time but what I know is that because of the routine because of the practice the moment my foot steps onto the stage that everything that a huge majority of it's just going to take over because I've done it so many times it's like with this talk I've given it I've given it I, I, I should count it up but it's a lot I've given this talk more than any other talk and at this point I can walk in and give the talk and there's a degree of like, auto, it's just coming out. And what it also allows for is it's not 100%, right? It's like 80-ish percent, 90-ish percent, some arbitrary number. That last 10 to 20%, that's where, you know, the audience can sort of provide some feedback. Like I can take in that energy of the audience that's giving me, you know, the the inquisitive like, that didn't make any sense or oh, I get it, and the head nods, and I can build on that as as, as somebody as a speaker on that stage. So back to your question, I'll say it again, is it sounds to me like you just need to practice it more. Do that routine a lot more so that it's so automatic that when you walk on that stage and give that talk or into that meeting, that to a large extent, it's just happening, and you're just going with the flow. Now, there's another part of that, which is what it is that you're focusing on you know, where focus goes, energy flows. And I, I think somebody like Tony Robbins or something said that. And, 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 and in essence, I think the, the point of it is really essential, which is, well, where are you putting your attention and your focus? For a lot of people that walk on, uh, walk on a stage to give a talk, they're not focusing on the purpose of why they, why they need to give that talk, right? They're focusing on, will this audience like me? And I know how easy that is as human beings to fall into that, especially as a stage actor. And especially if you're somebody that's going to give something that might be controversial or might push some buttons is that fear of, oh my gosh, will I be accepted in effect? And that can be combated with, again, that rehearsal. It's like practice it, put the visualization, do it over and over and over again. So that the only thing really that you have to consciously be focusing your attention on is how will I flex and mold and move to what I don't have control over and be ready for everything that I do have control over.
2: You know, Andrew, it's also kind of like if I were to give you directions to my house from the airport, I would be able to give you very clear, concise directions without much thought. I would be able to stick to the and of the primary focus, you need to get to my house from the airport. But if you gave me your address... And if I just looked up on Google Maps, where you live in relation to the airport, I'm going to be fumbling all over the place, not really given the correct details, sometimes the wrong details, given information that's not really imperative for this task. So, but in giving my own directions, I'm going to be able to just give it to you instantly off the top of my head, because it's something that I'm very familiar with. It's something that I've done over and over, you know, getting back to my house a lot. So I think that's also part of it is that having the confidence in the subject matter that you're talking about or doing, then also the repetition, which helps build the confidence and then also clear communication to give the important details to keep the focus in mind without giving a lot of the extra fluff in the conversation.
4: A great yeah. example, yeah. You're definitely right that my I'm not much of a practicer. I never have been. I try to force it, but sometimes it's not always there. And the other thing I do a lot is I find myself, I try to think a lot farther and ahead than I probably should. And when I have caught myself stumbling, it's, oh, I'm thinking like like two, three points ahead of where I'm at right now. And then I start to realize like, oh God, like I'm thinking super far ahead. And then that thought disrupts what I'm in the process of saying.
1: Yeah. So something, uh, I just finished a two person show, which I've had the honor of doing five two person shows. So it's like a lot of dialogue, a lot of content, like a lot of ups and down character arcs, right. That are happening. So kind of like a conference talk, it's like being two steps ahead can be dangerous. Cause you're like, no, no, no. I need to be here in this moment. And I need to be cognizant of what's happening two steps from now for a multitude of reasons. What if my my senior partner loses their place, right? And they're the one that's driving the scene because oftentimes in a two-person show, you're going to have these moments or these scenes where one of the two characters is kind of driving the scene along and the other one's sort of responding to what the other character is asking questions of or doing. And if they get lost and they're driving the scene, what do you do, right? And so as an actor being two steps ahead matters so you know where we need to get or where we need to go if they get totally off base so a strategy that i will use is i will go through the entirety of a script just like my talk and i will write down on a page the high level the high point journey of where all this needs to go and i will practice that journey like like having said dialogue in a script right? Okay. So the first thing that happens is the character comes in and we talk about the sandwich. And the second thing we talk about is, you know, I don't know, the problem at home and doing the laundry. And then we talk about that, right? And I will rehearse that time and time again. So it becomes automatic. So again, my brain and my mind will start to let go of some of those bits and pieces and be able to move on. Back to navigation. So an example is, I think we do this already when we're navigating, right? There are specifics like, okay, you're going to turn right on 2nd Street after you go past E Street on your left, right? There's these details. I'm the third house on the left, right? Pull into the driveway onto the right-hand side because I might have a car on the left, right? There's those detail bits. But you better start by going south <laughs> Will be a pretty important starting point, right? If you, if you start going north, the details won't matter. They just won't. Right, and so as a talk and as a talk presenter, you can deploy the same strategy of okay, well, as long as I know the high level bits and where we're trying to go with this sucker, like I can at least navigate my way towards success versus any direction we could end up as being, you know, somewhere that takes me off path. Another simple strategy is I am not a fan of Q and A at a talk. I don't know that Q&A right after a talk is effective. But even if there is Q&A, I will pre-frame for the audience what type of Q&A and an example of that Q&A that I would like for them to present so that I don't get everything, right? So I will, in fact, seed the audience with a question, right? What the type of question, the type of expectation that I have so that I can create that certainty for myself amidst the volatility and variability that could come out of a Q&A. Well,
3: what advice would you have for somebody who's on the fence or has never given a presentation? Like, I mean, we're talking about uh, techniques that can be used once you're kind of on the hook to, do, to deliver. But what, what about somebody that hasn't has never submitted a conference talk or is just kind of thinking maybe it would be good, but I don't know if I'm qualified. What advice do you have for that person? Get a mentor, find a mentor right away.
1: If you're listening and you are, that resonates for what Nate just said about, you know, you, you want to give a talk, you just don't know where to start. You, you don't know if you have, you're qualified or have subject matter. You would be blown away, so amazed at how many past speakers, even the most well-known would give you support just working that with you, helping you write the proposal, helping you develop the idea, you'd be blown away. In a CFP process or a call for proposal, when you're submitting a talk to an organizing body, it's actually not helpful to try and get advice through that medium. I've been on the program committee for a few different conferences, and it's really unfortunate because what I've always wanted to do is be able to give those submitting speakers some suggestions or advice on how to make their proposal or their idea a little bit more refined and a little bit more focused. But if you're talking about something like RailsConf, they're getting five, six, seven hundred submissions. They just simply don't have the time to help everybody. But if you turn that around and say, well, I'm not going to seek the organizers for support. I'm going to seek fellow speakers. Again, you'd be blown away. Uh, Nadia Odenayo, who is a very prolific speaker and a good friend of mine, she started a website called SpeakerLine.io, which... Is it's its high-level intention is to help demystify the speaking process. And so currently in its state, what it has is it has a bunch of well-known Ruby or Rails speakers that and many of their proposals, and on the right-hand side of each of their proposals, it'll say where were they rejected or accepted, right? So you know that it's like not every talk gets accepted. I've given dozens and dozens of talks, and half of my submissions don't get accepted. So There's nothing about... this. So demystifying that for you if you're listening and want to do it, there's so much support that's available to you. And I know that it can be scary to reach out to people that you might aspire to be like or you don't know. Uh, And so the best word of encouragement I can give you is, you know, muster up that courage, even if it's in that moment, to send a quick message. Heck, you can send it to me. I'm happy. If I've got the time, I am happy to help you try and extract out a talk. Um, Please, you know... Your fear is yours to own, but I hope that your fear doesn't push you past being able to give back to the community, That if, especially if you're compelled to do so, because there really are a lot of people that can help you out. There really are. This is a neat little website. I'm going to have to dig into some more of these. Yeah, Nadia is an incredible person. I, I am so pleased to call her a friend. And uh, for those of you listening, if, if you have an opportunity to, to reach out to Nadia, one of the most giving, positive people
0: I know, like, truly, it's just a dear, dear friend of mine. Yeah, we had her on the show a few years ago. And she is, she's very uh, bubbly personality and very happy to help people out. So yeah. Yeah, and, and I definitely love this. I mean, there there's... There's a certain level, too, of not just in speaking, but in other areas, too, that people get stuck, right? It's, okay, well, you know, I I don't know what to learn next, right? So I hear a lot about React View and Angular and, you know, which one do I learn and how and when and whatever. Or, you know, there's Webpacker and it's like, okay, well, do I need to learn Webpack and How does Webpacker interact with it? Blah, 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 right? And so you get all of these areas where people feel like they don't know where to explore. And it's the same exact thing, right? It's okay. Go out there and see who's speaking about it. Go out there and see who's blogging about it, who's making YouTube videos about it. And what I find is a lot of people in the community, you just go, I need help. And they're like, all right, let's hop on a Zoom. You can share your screen and I'll walk you through it. Without a doubt. Yeah. You know, it often takes a
1: few attempts. You know, I... I guess another area of encouragement is, is don't let the first try be the only try. You know, normalize your experience, create an average and, and build understanding off of that average. I mean, I run a business and I will tell you that looking at monthly information is only so helpful. Oftentimes, it, it isn't helpful. Trends are the thing that matters, right? And so if you're giving one attempt at something to get some support, you know, and not getting the type of feedback you're either hoping for or any feedback at all. You know i again, I highly encourage you to to try again, reach out to someone else, and also, there are certain individuals you know let's say dan abramoff of uh, you know of react or uh you know or Sarah May of the rails community and and as, as far as speaking, that probably get reached out to a lot now that 's not to say that they won 't provide support, but also to remember that there are thousands and thousands of other people that can provide a lot of, you know, support and insight, even people who are, you know, have only a handful of time more than you at a given thing. Sometimes they're the best because it's so recent to them. They don't have that stacked, you know, terminology or presumptive knowledge. They, they're not far from where you were, but moments prior, you know, and you
0: can reach out to them and get real insight from them as well. Yeah. I'll also just add in that, uh, if you have the opportunity to either work with somebody who's in one of these positions you just talked about, you know, because then a lot of times you're co-located with them or going to the user's group and finding somebody who's proficient with it. And a lot of times you can just get up in the meeting and say, hey, I'm a little bit lost on whatever it is you're trying to learn or I'm trying to submit talks to conferences and they're not getting accepted. Is anyone here, You know, can, can anyone here help me? And a lot of times people will come out of the woodwork there and they are people that aren't out there in the public and aren't getting all of these requests, and they have a little bit more time and availability to sit down with you. Yeah, totally true. All right. Well, anything else we should jump on or discuss here? Are there any points from your talk that we didn't go over? Well,
1: there's one element, uh, you know, Nate, you had asked, asked how has this evolved? Because, you know, this is referencing the talk I gave over a year ago at RailsConf 2018. And, you know, and it's, it's evolved quite a bit. One of the things I realized coming out of those first iterations of the talk that was missing was how can you expedite that experience timeline? And an example that I use or an exercise that I use in the recent iterations of the talk, and I encourage anybody to check it out online is, or if you're going to see the talk at Utah JS, don't check it out online. Or if you're going to see a version of it, don't so that you can be surprised by this too. But effectively, what it starts with is it starts with three symbols on a screen, the random shapes on a screen. And I tell the group, you know, these three symbols represent three digits. What three digits do they represent? And they don't have any direct meaning, right? And so you're guessing and you're like, "Um, uh, four, two, nine, whatever it happens to be. And then I say, okay, let me give you a key. I'm going to show you one through nine, what symbol represents each digit one through nine. And so I put that on the screen listed one through nine and go, okay, are you ready? And then I go back and say, okay, so you've now got them in your head with the three R. And then I go back to three different symbols and it's like, okay, what are these ones? It's like, oh, uh, you know, I haven't been paying attention. So I'm not going to reveal the hook in it, but I will say that the point of the exercise and there's a culminating event that illustrates that perspective Is essential. If you want to expedite learning, if you want to make it happen more quickly and adoption more quickly, giving the why behind why something exists matters substantially more than just the key to the equation. And I think that for many teams, we like this presumptive knowledge I was mentioning before, we presume that new members on a team, whether they're have less experience, or they're just truly new members, that they are they can the, the uptick will be faster for them, and that while that may or may not be true, you can force that and force that by providing an explanation as to why why did we choose Ruby instead of something else? Why are we following a TDD model? Why are we using RSpec versus Test Unit or some other or Mini Test or something along those lines? Why did we do this in React? Why did we not? Why did we build this feature this way? Why did we adopt these these patterns and styles? Like why did we do that? that gives context that allows for all the documentation that will surround that context to be much easier to take in. A lot of teams will throw documentation and say, this is your learning guide, right? This should give you all your answers. And while it might give you a majority of the answers, it's reliant on that individual piecing together what it all means and why those decisions were made in the first place. But if you start with that, you start with that perspective and that why, The uptick is so much faster, regardless of your experience level. It can be so, so much faster.
3: Yeah, I definitely have seen that play out in organizations where if you have the older employee that is still there and they haven't left the company, they can provide so much context that can ramp the team up like 10x faster than they would if they had to stumble through on their own. Yeah, absolutely.
1: That, I think, is the sign of a real senior or lead-level developer is one who can really support those by giving them a lot of context and a lot of perspective on
3: why one thing over the other. Yeah, and even why certain decisions they thought
0: were good at the time turned out not to be good, but now you get to live with it.
3: Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. Cool. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Harrington from the Food Fight Show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show, where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps, and you can find it at Podcast.com. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Dave, do you want to start us off with picks?
2: Yeah, sure. So one tool that I use in my workshop more than anything recently is my belt sander. And it was perhaps one of my cheaper tools, but it is one that I just, I love so much. And I use it for everything. I even had one time I was trying to fit a keyboard in my rack server and it was just a little bit too wide. So I just used that belt sander and just grinded away the edges of the keyboard to make it fit snugly in there. So they are super awesome. And my second pick is, it's going to be Pingverse, which is a new product that I just launched the other day. And it's for simple uptime monitoring. And that's at pingverse.com.
4: Nice. Andrew, what are your picks? So I just want to mention that I don't usually say who I work for on air, because when I inevitably say something really, really dumb, um, I don't want it to reflect negatively on that company. But My company is hiring Rails developers. So if you're interested or looking for a new job, you can reach out to me on Twitter. And my handle is Andrew M. Codes. And I'll make sure it's in the show notes.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we had a panelist on um, Adventures in Angular who worked for the Walt Disney Corporation. He he works somewhere else now. He works for Microsoft now. But yeah, we would talk about Walt Disney Company all the way up until we started the show. (laughs) And then we would just be like, John's company... But yeah, uh, so definitely understand that because he didn't want to represent their views or his views as their views. So yeah, totally get that. And Nate, do you have some picks for us?
4: Uh, yeah, I do. Let me,
3: let me pull over to my notes here. So one is a book that I read that seems very relevant to our conversation today and it's called Talent is Overrated. It's a pretty fantastic book. It really focuses on the, this idea of practice and how deliberate practice and kind of touches on this 10,000 hour concept to mastery. Right. And, and practice is really what produces results as humans. We often want to reach for this idea that somebody has got a natural talent or a natural knack, but that kind of gets us all off the hook from putting in the time and effort that the deliberate practice requires. Because if we did that, we would probably be approaching uh, mastery ourselves and the thing that we were practicing. So it's a pretty fantastic book. I've got another one here as well, and that is the the keynote from uh, Yehuda Katz. I think, I'm pretty sure it was from RailsConf in 2014, where he talks about shared tooling and the benefits of a community kind of converging on and using shared tooling to essentially gain the benefits of this cognitive compression so that it makes it more welcoming to beginners and, and just makes it more productive for everyone involved. And those are mine.
0: Awesome. I'm going to jump in with a few picks. One thing that I've been playing with lately is Algolia, and that's at algolia.com. It is a, essentially a search platform for websites. If you have documentation for your open source project, then you can actually use their doc search project for free and uh, it'll index the documentation. And then you can just embed the search in there. Devchat.tv is not an open source. It's not a website for an open source project. So, uh, you know, we don't qualify for that, but uh, people have been asking me for some form of search on, on the devchat.tv website. So, I've been playing with it and they have an open source version of DocSearch. You can actually just fire it up in Docker. You give it the API keys for your index and then it'll shove all the stuff in there. So I've actually got it running right now on my machine as we talk and record. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited for some of the possibilities here. So I'm going to pick that. And then a few other things. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be at a few conferences and I'm probably going to start putting up events where it's like, hey, come meet me at whatever. And uh, so I'll just throw a few of those out. The first one is NG... No, it's RxJS Live. I always want to say NGRX because anyway, it's all Rx, which is uh, the reactive observables in JavaScript. Um, It's the main library for that. Uh, And NGRX is basically that for Angular. And so I've had conversations and they get crossed in my head. But it's RxJS Live. You know, it's basically the successor to Promises, but they're way more powerful. I uh, think Enumerable with uh, data streaming in, and you you kind of get the idea if you're a Rubyist and you've been you know dealing with Enumerable for a while. So yeah, just uh, putting that out there. It's going to be in Las Vegas, September fifth and sixth. I believe this comes out the Tuesday before. There are probably still going to be tickets because it's a rather new conference. And what I find is the first year of a conference, they just don't sell out. So Definitely check that out. And if you can make it out, that would be awesome. And then I'm also going to be at uh, the GitLab Commit conference. It's one day. It's Tuesday, the 15th of September, I want to say, in Brooklyn. They're also doing one in London in October, but I'm not going to make it to that one. So uh, yeah, check that one out as well. And then I'm looking at an AI conference at the end of September. And so if I get out to that one, then I will let you all know. But yeah, I'm going to pick those, and uh, yeah, pick Algolia. So yeah, those are my picks. Adam, do you have some picks for us? I do.
1: So first is a, a book that's related to marketing. That if uh, you've not heard of it, it is man, it hits the nail on the head. I before I was in software development, I was in creative direction for a company, and it's Seth Godin's "This Is Marketing." What's really quite incredible about it, if you haven't brought this up before, was it focuses heavily on bringing value to a small audience that sees great value in you solving a problem. And I think even if you're not in business or entrepreneurship, the lessons that he outlines in here can apply to just day-to-day life, either with your partner or at work, Like just thinking about how do we deliver a lot of value to the people around us and the reciprocal nature of that. So again, Seth Godin's This Is Marketing uh, subtitle, You Can't Be Seen Until You Learn to See. So this was really good. And then I want to promote actually our podcast as well. So I run a podcast called Interestings um, at our team at Zeal. And we explore the interesting side of tech, but more importantly, everything else that's around it. So it was originally started by our engineering team as a way to speak with people who had either published articles or had presented you know, new, creative, and ingenious ways to think about various topics, whether it's new frameworks or even just very niche technologies And we had been running it for a couple of years. And then at the end of this last year, we decided to put it on hiatus, I think because it was getting kind of random and looking at, well, what and how could we focus it? So we decided to focus this coming season on personal development and topics around that personal development and personal growth and all the very niche ideas around it. So the interviews that are gonna launch this next season, I'm super excited about. They are really fascinating. I interview a woman that was the keynote speaker at a conference, and she talks about having a defibrillator uh, with software that is hackable. And what does that mean towards the life, as far as quality of life and the kind of threat of life to herself, given that that could be taken advantage of and it could be used against her. So we talk about just these really niche topics, and I'm super excited about the podcast that's upcoming. And then the last thing is related to this, I've been putting together, uh, I have a survey that is related to just general topics of confidence. What do people do? How do they address it to sort of demystify imposter syndrome as far as not just being a thing that we feel, but how we handle it. And so that'll be something I would love to include as well as just as part of a research project for me to help really better understand how people are going through the topic of confidence, how they think about it, how they feel about it, how they handle it. And there's a, a gift in there for your time. So I don't want to make it just a self-serving pitch. But yeah, those are my picks. Awesome. And Adam, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Uh, you can find me under my name just about everywhere. So on Twitter at Adamcuppy C-U-P-P-Y. On LinkedIn, the same. I'd love to connect with all of you on both of those spots. Instagram, the same. And GitHub, the same. And then my company, Coding Zeal, which we just call Zeal, uh, you can find that in just about everywhere in the same way. So CodingZeal, C-O-D-I-N-G, Z as in zebra, dot com, And then the podcast is at podcast.codingzeal.com as well. Nice. And do you want to
0: just give a quick elevator pitch for Zeal? For sure.
1: Yeah. So we're a, a people-focused, process centered consultancy. So we build custom web and mobile applications for companies all around the United States. Our team is distributed. We're also hiring and we're looking for people in all, all skill levels contract and full-time positions and what we really like to focus our attention on is how developing a unique process as a team a playbook in essence that can help a team be really effective how we can do that with that and through the code deliver some really quality stuff really quality features but level level everybody up in the process and so again if you want to check out codingzeal.com
0: if you have questions love to be able to help good deal all right. Well, thank you for coming and talking to us. This was really fascinating. And it's fun to talk about the the people side of code. So, Yeah, thank you so much. I had a really good time. We can do it again anytime. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this one up, folks.
2: All right. Talk to you all later.
0: Bye. Bye. Have a great day. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.